As we begin this morning, I'd like to read a couple of verses from the fourth chapter of Daniel. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised up my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? Father, we know that you are the sovereign of the universe and that we live by your grace and by your permission. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have called us into your kingdom and, Lord, we desire to be faithful servants of the true and the living King. And so, Father, today, as we look at your word, we pray that truth will, will penetrate our hearts and it will be truth that will change who we are and make us more into the men and women of God that you've called us to be. I thank you for this opportunity you give to us to yet freely worship together. And we're thankful, Lord, that you are faithful to us each and every day. And we're trusting that now your hand will bless not only this class, but each Sunday school class as it takes place uh, this hour and the following hour, and of course the services as they take place as well. And we trust, Lord, that around the world uh, your power will be magnified and glorified, and that this day on the continents of the earth, literally hundreds of thousands of men and women will be brought into your kingdom. And we'll thank you for this great work in Christ's name. Amen. Today, if you would turn to the fourth chapter of 2 Samuel. Now, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel was disturbed. And Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon the Barathite, sons of the sons of Benjamin. For Barath was also considered part of Benjamin. And the Barathots fled to Getaim and have been aliens there until this day. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. And he was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, she fell, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, Rechab and Baana, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. And they came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly. And Rechab and Baana his brother escaped. Now when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. And they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my lord the king vengeance this day on, the, on Saul and his descendants. And David answered Rechab and Baana his brother, sons of Rimmon the Barathite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, 
Shall I not require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded the young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried in the grave of Abner in Hebron. Obviously, not a bedtime story. <laughs> this account, as bloody as it is, is very important to understanding the history of the kingship in Israel. Ishbosheth, as you remember, was elevated by Abner to the kingship in order to prevent David from acquiring that very kingship, Ishbosheth being the son of Saul. But when Abner was murdered, as we saw last time, he was assassinated in the gate of Hebron by Joab. This took away Ishbosheth's protection. And what we have here is an account of two renegades, uh, two individuals who loosely served Ishbosheth, but really served for their own good. They weren't commanders of his official army. They commanded what we might call marauding bands. We're also given in the fourth verse a, a little clip, a little vignette, concerning a son that Jonathan had, whose name was Mephibosheth. And, and we're told that when he was five, when the news of, of Jonathan and Saul's death came, that the nurse, in her fear, because apparently they were close enough to the scene of action, that there was concern that the Philistines might, might capture them, that in their haste to depart, somehow Mephibosheth was dropped or fell off a wall. We don't know what happened to him exactly, but he became lame in his feet. And this is included so that we might know that this individual, although he was in the line to inherit the throne, was not capable of inheriting the throne because of his disability. We find here that these two individuals, Rechab and Baana, felt that this was their opportunity to enhance their position. Since it was obvious that if Shbosheth was losing ground, David was gaining ground, and that probably all Israel would switch over to David, this was their opportunity, they thought, to get in good with David and to take the life of his rival and cart the head down to David at Hebron. Again, we're, we're talking about an event which transpires in, along the Jabbok Brook here, the river Jabbok, which flows into the, into the Jordan here, an event that takes place here. And then these men, it tells us they went down the Arabah. We talked about the Arabah last week, this down-faulted area through here. Uh, they traveled down the Arabah, probably to uh, Jericho, turned up the road from Jericho to the highlands, and then down here to Hebron. As I mentioned last time, that would be a trip of roughly 50 miles give or take a few. As you well know, there were clearly defined what they would have called highways in those days, routes of travel, but none of them would have been anything more than just a, a dirt path, in effect. Uh, one that had been trampled down, of course, by mules and horses and, and men's feet over the centuries, so it was a very clear path and hard packed. But obviously roads in those days were built to, to follow the easiest line, so they didn't blast tunnels, they didn't, you know, carve away areas or fill in areas, so the roads went up and down and all around. So it's really hard to, to come up with an exact figure, but 50 miles is probably a, a fairly good estimate of the distance that these men traveled. Rechab and Baana were obviously unaware of David's commitment to the sovereignty of God. They were also apparently ignorant of what had happened to the Amalekite. 
who had come trotting into David's camp at Ziklag, proudly presenting the crown of Saul and saying, I killed Saul, your enemy, here's the crown. Aren't you, aren't you uh, proud of me? Won't you give me some great reward? And so these individuals boldly, and I think very expectantly, marched right into David's camp as big as life uh, to hand him the head of Ishbosheth. They even sanctioned what they had done in the sense that they claimed that through their action, the Lord had brought vengeance upon the house of Saul in honor of the house of David. And they implied, of course, that they had been God's instruments of justice. In other words, what they had done was really what God wanted done. I mean, they, they knew enough about David that David paid attention to the Lord. They just didn't know how closely he paid attention to the Lord. So in many ways, he was very much, these two brothers were very much like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, who rather than searching the Word of God to discover the will of God and then doing it, did what they thought was right and proclaimed it to be the will of God. We see this all the time today in America. We, we see people who, who live a profane or, or immoral lifestyle, but, but claim that they're really God's people and that they're God's children. I, I'm truly a Christian, one says, and then goes and poses for Playboy. You, you know, and, and these people turn around and they will say about any scripture that seems to condemn what they're doing or their attitude, they will say, oh, well, that scripture has been misinterpreted or it has been misimplied by some kind of a, na a narrow-minded biblical literalist, you know, somebody who would dare to take the Bible at face value. We see it all the time today in America. And, and I think as a result, the church nationwide has been very widely watered down in America. And just, just listening this morning to Lutzer, Erwin Lutzer was speaking rather boldly this morning and uh, saying, if, if you heard him, he was saying that he, he, he says it's very possible God has allowed these bad things to happen, that he's allowed pornography to become so rampant in this country and so many other things, simply because the church has missed its mark and is no longer following the literal teaching of Scripture and walking in obedience to it, but rather trying to take a political route to, to you know, to righteousness in the land and elect a Congress that would be godly, <laughs> would be hard to do, but nevertheless, you know, and, and think that that's the route by which we're going to turn the nation around when that's not going to happen. It's going to only happen by the power and the might of God through the prayer of God's people and by righteous living on, on, on part of the, of the church of, of God. Well, David's reaction to this whole thing is very predictable from our perspective, right? We already know something about David. And so we could say, oh, oh, these guys have walked into a, a minefield. But the sons of Rimmon were totally caught off guard. I mean, they were absolutely convinced that they had done a good thing and that, that, that David was going to reward them. He was going to say, oh, you wonderful guys, you can become commanders in my army and, and I'll give you a fancy home over here and, and here's some money. And they, they certainly dreamed of all those things. But David began his response, and I think this is very significant to notice how David began his response to them. He began it by invoking the name of the Lord and proclaiming his sovereignty. The Lord is the one who has redeemed my life, David said. And the, word, the Hebrew word for redeem means to ransom, to rescue. I have been rescued. I've been ransomed by God. How he understood this is explained for us, 
I think if we look at one of the psalms that David wrote, the 55th psalm, gives a little bit of insight into uh, David's ideas about God as his Redeemer. Psalm 55, reading at verse 16, As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save, the Lord will redeem me. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are many who strive with me. And then down in verse 22, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken, but thou, O God, wilt bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in thee. David's, you'll notice David doesn't uh, kind of work uh, because we're dumbfounded at David's response. He recounts the story of the Amalekite to them. Unfortunately, they didn't know the story already. Had they heard the story before, they might have saved themselves their lives. And, and so David tells them, well, you know, there was this Amalekite, and he came, and he was expecting a reward just like you guys are. And he claimed that he had killed Saul, and he thought that I was going to be happy because they had, he had killed my enemy. But David says, and what was his reward? His execution. His execution. If the Amalekite deserved death for having slain Saul, whom, if he had really done this, at least had slain Saul on the battlefield. But these two guys has snuck into a man's house while he's taking a siesta and killed him in his sleep. How cowardly is that? It's an assassination to their utter astonishment. I mean, I don't think you can even portray how, I mean, I would love to have a, a photograph of those guys' faces at the moment they heard David say to the young men, kill him. I mean, when you think you're going to be rewarded, you've done a great thing, and, you're, and, and, and the payment is death. How does that translate into our society today of many who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I mean, it's the same basic idea of those who, who think they're doing God a good thing, a good favor without finding out what the will of God is, without even knowing God, really, in the first place. The church is shot through with people like this. As last Sunday Lutzer was preaching, he says, they are illegitimate children of God. As a stark warning to any others who think they might gain David's favor by taking matters into their own hands and doing things the way they thought things ought to be done, he not only had these two men hung up, but he had their hands and their feet amputated, you know, to illustrate that he who will do God's will without God's word, without knowing God, who, who thinks they're, you know, they're, they're, they're footless and handless, you know, they're, they're incapable, they're incompetent. He will hang them up by the water well in town. I mean, everybody had to go to the well to get water. They didn't have water piped into homes. So everybody had to go to the well to get water, and you, you couldn't go to the well and get water without seeing these guys hanging there. Now, to us, that's, that's gory. We think, oh, you know, how Old Testament. 
But do you know that the French were still using the guillotine until well after World War II? When the guillotine was first introduced, it was public. It was done in the square in front of everybody. Hangings and shootings all through history have been done in this country and around the world publicly. Now, this isn't really so far different from the way mankind has been operating all over the world, even into modern times. But David did it for a purpose, and that is that others would be warned that they had better consider God before they take action. By this time, I think, well, and, and of course, then what David does to kind of reverse the whole thing, he takes the head of Ishbosheth and buries it in the tomb of Abner. He gives it an honorable burial. And so, I mean, that's like another smack in the face of these two guys. I mean, it doesn't hurt about anything because they're already dead, but it's that kind of an idea. I think by this time, David's followers had certainly come to realize that David was a man of integrity who would live and rule by grace and power of God and who would not tolerate anyone who tried to play God. Playing God. Now, this is a huge temptation. I mean, all of us are tempted from time to time to play God and to not let God do it, but to do it ourselves. Patience is a virtue, they say, and many of us from time to time don't have that virtue. We want God to act now, and if he isn't, we're going to do it for him. David was not one who was going to practice what, what became popular back in the 1960s called situation ethics. Well, this is my principle, but if the situation develops in such a way that my holding to my principle is not going to make me look good, then I will just simply let go of my principle and do something else. David was not going to play that game. Even if it meant that David would not become king over Israel, he was not going to bend the rules. He was going to remain true to God. His actions stemmed from who, whom he was. And I think that's really the important principle here, too. It came from the, the warp and the woof of, of his being. Who was David? David wasn't simply a man who, who tried to do the things of God. He was a man who was filled with the Word of God and filled with the Spirit of God. It was being. He, he was a man of God. And he acted out of being a man of God. He was transformed in his mind. All of, all of us, of course, remember and have probably memorized Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we're told in the second verse there, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, the only way that transformation of the renewing of our minds can occur is through the Word of God. And so David certainly was a man of God who knew the Word of God. And the Word of God had developed his character. And the Spirit of God had come upon him. And the Spirit of God working through him made the Word of God live through his being. And that's really should be the goals, one of the goals of our lives. It's really the ultimate goal of true faith. It's really the ultimate uh, stamp of, of a true Christian. The Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment for our eternal life. And we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And if we have that seal on us, that seal is always there and it's visible to all. But of course, I think the seal becomes more clearly evident or, or more 
hard to see depending on the degree to which we obey the Word of God, degree to which we know the Word of God, and make it part of our very being. Let's look now at the first five verses of the fifth chapter of 2 Samuel. Then all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel. You will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over Israel and Judah. Well, Abner's been murdered, and he was the person who was the catalyst, making this transfer of the kingship from Saul's family to David's family a reality. But, but he's dead, he's gone. But what we discover here is that the people follow through on Abner's initiative and they carry out what he had intended to take place and they make the effort to unite the nation under David. Who's behind this? Obviously God Almighty, right? I think David's summary execution of the murderers of Ishbosheth served to facilitate this because Ishbosheth was the king of these other people. And to see David treat the murderers in such a way assured them, assured them that this was a man of principle and a man of justice, the kind of person we want to be king over us. At least the wise ones did. Therefore, the elders of Israel felt secure in coming to David at Hebron and anointing him king over the entire nation. And you'll notice in this passage that they, anoint, that, that they acknowledge kinship. You're bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Even though most of these who are speaking are not of the tribe of Judah because Judah has already made David king. But it's the other 12 tribes that have now come and, and are making David king over them. And they are acknowledging that he is of their blood because they are all, of course, sons of Israel. They also acknowledge that David had served them already very well while Saul was king, that it was he who led them out into victory. I mean, they, they hadn't forgotten that, even though for a while it had kind of been set aside. But now they're acknowledging, well, actually, it was David who killed Goliath. It was David who led Israel out and defeated the Philistines. It was David who was the commander of Saul's army for such a long period of time. They also acknowledge that the Lord had chosen David to be their king. And so they're simply fulfilling what the Lord had already ordained to be. The second verse of this passage is unique in that it is the first statement in Scripture to proclaim the king of Israel as shepherd over the people. Shepherd. Now, to us, in the Christian community who are familiar with that word and, and we understand it from the biblical point of view, we may not realize how radical that concept was. Because this implies pastoral care of the people, not tyrannical rule which is common amongst the kings of history. 
it implies a benevolent rather than a selfish use of power. How radical. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Start clicking off the kings and queens of history that you know about, and you'll find very few shepherds or shepherdesses among them. Almost every one of them rule for their own glory and for their own honor. Oh, sure, you know, under the Confucian method of thought, which, uh, uh, which dominated China for 2,000 years, the Confucian thinking was that you have, re that relationship is everything. Relationship, father to son, husband to wife, king to people, and that the, the most, the best form of ruler is a benevolent monarch. Sure, that's, that's really well and good, but you will go very far in Chinese history to ever find a benevolent monarch. Just like the kings of all history and the emperors of all other nations, they rule for selfish motivation and, and not for the good of the people. It was rare to find a benevolent ruler. But we know, of course, that the Lord is the quintessential shepherd over his people. So what does David become? He becomes the under-shepherd. He becomes in the flesh manifestation of the reality of God before his people. His job was not to be just political, not just to be the political leader of the country, but to shepherd them, to be a spiritual leader. And we find David doing that in a way that few other kings in Israel ever did. This didn't cut out the priest or the Levites. It didn't cut out the, the worship at the tabernacle. But, but, but David set the tone for the country, for his people. These were sheep-herding people. The Hebrews for hundreds of years had been shepherds. And so to think that their king was going to shepherd them was a comforting thought to these people. Oh, yes, the king will be our shepherd. And in a way, he will be God in the flesh. How unlike the surrounding nations, whose kings didn't serve the people, they lorded it over the people, and they used the people to accomplish their personal goals. I, I don't suppose there's a better example of that truth in all of history than to look at the reign of Louis XIV of France back in the 16th and early 17th century. When that man drained the resources of France and drained the manpower of France for war after war after war for what? Because he was the great sun king. No, that as the sun shined on the earth and gave it life, so he shined on France and was the essence of the nation. And therefore, to glorify him was to glorify the country so you would want to give all of your money and all of your sons for that goal. And he used it, devastated the nation as a result. And today, if you ever visit France and you visit the palace at Versailles, you're looking at a monument to human kings who live by the power of the flesh and the glory of their name and at the instigation of the enemy of our souls. In the New Testament, of course, we know very well, and, and when we talk about the Good Shepherd, it instantly pops into your mind, does it not? Jesus' words in the 10th chapter of John, where he talks about being the Good Shepherd over his people, over the, over the flock of the children of God. And so as Jesus is portrayed as the good shepherd and as David now is the good shepherd over his people, Israel, he becomes a type of Christ, does he not? Uh, he, he, he will, Jesus tells us in the first part of the 10th chapter of John that the good shepherd sleeps in the, in the doorway to the sheepfold. 
so that nothing to harm the sheep can enter the sheepfold except over the body of the shepherd. And so he's there to defend his sheep. And, and so David would be pictured there in the nation of Israel as the one who would be there to protect the nation. And in doing so, he was a type of Christ. He set the tone that Jesus would use later on during his ministry. Let me read from the Psalm 78. Psalm 78, the last three verses of the psalm, verses 70, 71, and 72. Again, we have a statement of the sovereignty of God. It says, He also chose David, his servant. So how did David get to be king of Israel? God chose him. And took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of the ewes with suckling lambs he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. David knew what it was like to be a shepherd. He'd been one all of his early life. That's how he made his living. That was his responsibility. He was called from the sheep when he was ordained, when he was anointed by Samuel to be king. He came directly from caring for sheep. And now he has a much bigger shepherding responsibility. He must shepherd the whole nation of Israel. But he will do so, as we read in this psalm, because God has chosen him because he has the experience and because he would do it out of the integrity of his heart. A man of true integrity. As we know very well, uh, David will also make some very, very serious mistakes, which just helps us to know we can relate to him. Because all of us know that even as we endeavor to walk in the integrity of our hearts, sometimes we don't. And sometimes we do and say things that God is not pleased with. And so it was with David. And yet, David was a man after God's own heart. And so are you. And so am I. What followed was the making of a covenant. Before the Lord, Israel came and they anointed David and they made a covenant with David that he would be their king and they would be his people. Before the Lord, they swore this allegiance. Sort of like in the medieval world where on a handshake, nobles would, would swear allegiance. And it was an inviolable oath called oath of fealty, oath of faithfulness. And so it would be here. But what is interesting here is that we have a single verse which describes a whole national celebration. You know, we read in the fifth chapter, in the third verse, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed King David king over Israel, period. It sounds like, well, let's get this thing over with. They went up there and said, David, we anoint you king. Thank you. Bye-bye. Go home. That's what it sounds like. But we get a much fuller picture from First Chronicles. The Chronicles were assembled in either the 6th or the 5th century before Christ. Some scholars believe that Ezra was the primary chronicler, although there's no agreement on that. We don't really know who the chroniclers were. There's no consensus on authorship of the Chronicles. But many believe that the Chronicles have a single author because of certain internal integrity of the writing, which seems to indicate that one person assembled the material into the book of Chronicles. The purpose of Chronicles, why in the world do we have 
you know, we have Second Samuel, we have First and Second Kings. Why in the world do we need somebody else telling us the story all over again in First and Second Chronicles? Well, it's because in the Chronicles there's a greater emphasis upon the spiritual elements, especially of the Davidic kingship. And you would discover that certain events which are described very briefly in Kings or in Second Samuel are expanded upon in Chronicles. And so I would like for us to turn to the 12th chapter of 1 Chronicles for a moment. And if we look at verse 23, 1 Chronicles 12, 23, we're going to discover that what is summarized in one verse in 2 Samuel is explained in 18 verses in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 23. Now these are the numbers of the divisions equipped for war who came to David at Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. The sons of Judah who bore the shield and spear were 6,800 equipped for war. The sons of Simeon, mighty men of valor for war, 7,100. The sons of Levi, 4,600. Now Jehoiada was the leader of the house of Aaron and there was with him 3,700. And also Zadok, a young man mighty of valor of his father's house, uh, father's house, 22 captains of the sons of Benjamin, Saul's kinsmen, 3,000, for until now the greatest part of them had kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. And of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men in their father's household. And of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by name to come and make David king. Notice that, designated by name to come. This is when something just happened overnight. And the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Their chiefs were 200 and their kinsmen were at their command. Of Zebulon, there were 50,000 who went out in the army who would draw up in battle formation with all kinds of weapons of war and help David with an undivided heart. And of Naphtali, there were 1,000 captains and with them 37,000 with shield and spear. Of the Danites who could draw up in battle formation, there were 28,600. Of Asher, there were 40,000 who went out in the army to draw up in battle formation. And from the other side of Jordan, of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, there were 120,000 with all kinds of weapons of war for battle. All these, being men of war who could draw up in battle formation, came to Hebron with a perfect heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of one mind to make David king. And they were there with David three days, eating and drinking, for the kinsmen had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near to them, even as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, brought food on donkeys, camels, mules, and, ox, and on oxen, great quantities of flour cakes, fig cakes, bunches of raisins, wine, oil, oxen, sheep. And there was joy indeed in Israel. So what sounds to us in 2 Samuel like, you know, a few dozen leader, elders of Israel come to anoint David uh, king, and we've got a mob scene here. You know, this is what we got. Here we got this huge army of individuals. I just roughly figured it out. It comes to a third of a million. Debbie? Do you have a clue as to how many people there were then in, that, in Israel? If there were that many came as the warriors? They're, they're probably, well, of uh, Egypt. There is, of course, no total agreement on this. But the estimate is that maybe as many as two to two and a half million came out in the Exodus. Some argue, oh, it couldn't possibly be, the land couldn't have sustained them, and 
Well, it wasn't the land who, which sustained them. But even if it were a smaller number, we're talking about several hundred years later, they had relative peace in the land, so we're, we're talking about a population of several million, whatever that number might have been. We, we do run across some rather big numbers, and some argue that we ought to lop off the last zero simply because in looking at the whole thing, they don't think it could be so big. The word thousand in, in Hebrew is, is a bit of a nebulous word. Often it refers to tent groups. and so. But, but as I pointed out, and this was actually, I forget when it was, but it was maybe a year or two ago, maybe longer, I don't remember. But there was a particular passage of Scripture, and I'd have to look it up now, can't even think of where it was, but it talked about numbers from very large ones to very small ones, all in a very short passage. And, and even numbers that weren't rounded off in zeros. And as a result, when you start looking at it that way, you have to think, well, you know, if they actually give you 31, and they tell you 124, and then they tell you 5,260, and then they tell you 40,000 something or other, I mean, it seems like when you look at that kind of a progression that the numbers must be what they are translated to be. So we're a lot of people living in the land. You know, this whole thing about uh, demography, which is a good point that you bring up here, many have never believed that the population of certain areas could be as big, could, could have been very big in the ancient world, that everything had to be very, very small in number. But the people who are the uh, students, for example, of Latin America now today, argue that the numbers who lived in the Aztec Empire, the Inca Empire, the Chipcha Empire, and the rest were a whole lot bigger numbers than, than the Spanish estimated, and the numbers that we continued to agree upon. Some argued that when Columbus discovered America, there were probably no more than a million Indians living between the Rio Grande and the Arctic Ocean. Now they're saying, oh, it was a far larger number than that. Many, many millions lived here. And uh, so, you know, I, I think populations could be a whole lot larger in the ancient world than has been given credit before. But that, that's, that's a good point. Well, uh, what we have, of course, here, and I need to wrap this up, is that we've got this huge number of men who are coming. What for? Well, you know, I think part of it is to put on this great military display to confirm David as their king and to impress him. Look, David, you don't just have 600 men. You've got a third of a million men under your command now. Actually, later on, that will be a, a trap for David, Late, much later in his reign, when he will take a census of the nation Take a census of all Israel because he wanted to know how many mighty men do I really have? How strong am I? You know, well, David, you're only as strong as the Lord makes you. You can have a billion men. Doesn't matter if God isn't your strength and God isn't your shield. And so what we have here is representatives from 13 tribes. You might say, but there were only 12 tribes in Israel, weren't there? No, there were 13 tribes in Israel, right? Because the tribe of Joseph split into Ephraim and Manasseh because Levi became the priestly tribe. So when you start talking about uh, the tribes separately, you, you are, there are actually 13 tribes uh, that were in Israel. And what we're told here is that they came with a perfect heart, meaning in unity. They came in unity to proclaim David as king. And we're told in the passage also that even those who didn't come were of one mind to make David king, how is this possible? Only by the might of God. David bided his time, and God made it happen. It's really a, a powerful testimony of the fact that God will do it. 
Give him time. Pray, but give him time to do it.